0: You're listening to the Tri State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at Facebook.com forward slash Tri State Reformed Church. Here are the words of Jesus When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we <laughs> the first words that come to my mind is as we praise, you, you know what we need before we even ask. Though that won't be the subject this morning, Father, it's a great subject. And well, Father, we, we do need illumination. Uh, we do need to hear your voice this morning from your word. And Father, we need your instruction as always. We need your care. We need your help. We need your grace. and Father, we ask that you'd be pleased, Lord, to, to do this for us, Lord. And we know it is your great pleasure to instruct your children. And Father, we come to you and we bow before you and, and we look to you, oh Father, that you might feed us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Last week, we began a uh, series on prayer. We took a break in our study of John's gospel, and we came to the Sermon on the Mount, and I think probably two-thirds of the sermon last week was really an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And I know a lot of that can be tedious, but I hope you saw last week it's very important because we need to be settled in how the Sermon on the Mount applies to us. How does it apply to us? And as we saw last week, the Sermon on the Mount is is quite famous. You know, I pointed out last week that in our culture, uh, you can still hear uh, vestiges of the Sermon on the Mount um, spoken in everyday language. Such phrases as turn the other cheek or uh, phrases, the golden rule, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you um, or judge not. Uh, you, you'll hear that you know, in, in culture all Italian. Um, so the time. So the sermon is famous, uh, but unfortunately it's, it's, it's practically as misunderstood as it is famous. So we spent a lot of time last week looking at exactly how does the Sermon on the Mount apply to us. And the reason for that is we must have a settled conviction on this. Uh, we have to get that settled before we go... Uh, really, any further? And last week we saw that there's two applications uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. There's one application to everyone, and of course, that application is conviction of sin. And I mentioned to my uh, using myself as an example. I come to faith by reading my Bible, by studying my Bible, and it was the, the Lord brought great conviction in my in my heart to sin by studying the Ten Commandments and and then studying the Sermon on the Mount and you know, I like to use this as an example. This is an example of how twisted our fallen hearts are. I can remember studying the, the law, studying the Ten Commandments, and thinking initially that I, I, okay, I blew eight of them, but I got two, I'm doing okay. And being comforted by that. Now, um, I don't know how many have ever been comforted when you got your test back and you only got a 20%. Has anyone found that comforting? Uh, You know, if you cared about your grades at all, that was devastating. 20% is a solid F. That's not even approaching a D. Nevertheless, our hearts are so twisted, you know, I got got two of them right. I got two of them right. Well, then you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you know the two I'm talking about. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and you discover, no, you didn't get two of them right. In fact, when you break the first one, you've broken them all. Uh, the whole thing just comes crashing down. That's the universal application of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the only universal application of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the convict of sin. But we must go further in that. There's another application for those who have come to faith and in Christ Jesus. And we might call them the regenerate. We could call those who are in a state of grace. We could use a lot of words for that. Uh, uh, for them, the Sermon on the Mount is a guide to lead us in kingdom life. And last week, um, we, were, uh, we were describing the church as peculiar people, as Peter uh, says, that we've been called uh, to be God's peculiar people, drawing from the King James translation of that verse. And what is the Sermon on the Mount to God's peculiar people? Well, it's direction and how to begin living. Are we going to be able to walk this way perfectly? Not right now, but we will. And we're supposed to get started at it right now. Um, and that's, that's the key. So we wouldn't want to hang this... Uh, yoke upon an unconverted heart, he or she would not have the ability to do this. They're either going to fall into great despair or they're going to become pharisaical, one or the other. Those are the two outcomes that would happen pastorally if we, if we hung such a yoke on somebody. But as you come into a state of grace, this is our direction. This is, this is what kingdom life looks like. And we can be of great, cur- great cheer. You read the Sermon on the Mount, read it over and over again. It, it, it can be very despairing. Uh, because it, it does convict us of many, many, many shortcomings. But let's balance that, dis- that despair uh, with excitement that this is where the Lord's taking us. Though today, on this side of glory, we're going to fail miserably to keep the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. But once we go through the door of death and we find ourselves glorified, well, guess what? Uh, in that moment in time... We're going to begin to walk this way. This will describe us. I mean, it actually will describe us, which is quite wonderful. So it's direction to peculiar people in kingdom living. That's the second application of it. Now, with that settled, our subject is prayer, and our master is Christ, and we're so blessed to have this great direction uh, in this work. And he says these words in verse 5. He says them in verse 6. He says them in verse 7. When We Pray, or When You Pray, if you will. And that's the title of last week's sermon, and it's the title of this week's sermon. I didn't try to be novel in any way. I just said, you know what? When You Pray, part two. How's that sound? Uh, When You Pray, part two. Uh, Now, again, what I said last week is Jesus is assuming that prayer will take place. Of course, prayer will take place. Uh, Prayer uh, takes place. Uh, Believers and unbelievers alike pray. Pray. Uh, What Jesus is concerned with is that prayer takes place properly, that we do prayer properly, that we do it correctly. So he says these great words, when you pray, um, and uh, he gives us this direction. And last week we were looking at verses 5 and verse 6. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And what did we see that the hypocrites were doing? Well, they were using fake prayers to get applause, Is in essence what they were doing. That's the simplest way I know to put it, Um, using fake prayers to get an applause. Um, And, um, of course, this applause is what we might call worldly praise or worldly recognition. And I want to draw your attention to the larger context here. If you go up to verse 1, there Jesus um, he, he shows us beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's how he starts setting this up. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now look at verse 2. He says, thus when you give. So you see, as part of this address, as part of this instruction, we don't just have prayer, but we also have giving. And he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. I can remember giggling and laughing by that, you know. It's almost a picture of, there's more to it than that, but imagine a person about to give someone and then blowing a bugle, you know, to draw attention to yourself. now well, never mind. It's kind of comical, I think, but I do believe God has a uh, sense of humor. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. Now he goes on in verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, if you look down to verse 16, there you see Jesus takes up the subject of fasting. Fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Their fasting that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. I cannot read that verse without thinking of this young this youngster that came into our music store a long time ago. And he's, you know, I have to remind myself he's not a he. He was probably fourteen or fifteen years old then, and now I have to remind myself that he's not fourteen or fifteen now. He's. You know, you can do the math. He's probably in his late, he's probably his late thirties and maybe even early forties now. But um, he decided he was going to fast for a week, and um, he had everybody know that he was going to fast for a week. Uh, he came in the store for something. I can couldn't tell you what he came in the store for, but I can tell you. Everyone in the store knew he was fasting for a week. I mean, and I, and I, don't, I don't say this to put him down. Actually, um, he was a kid that we were really very proud of. I mean, he's just a youngster, you know, and the fact that he was really making efforts to follow Jesus and really taking Jesus so seriously uh, was, was marvelous, but I still can see his face with the gloomy, uh, oh, I'm fasting, oh, you know, I can see all that. And, and, and this is the kind of thing, you know, when you're trying to do, this is where our hearts are at. When you're trying to do your best uh, before the Lord, you can see uh, what's going on here. Uh, he was really attempting to get attention uh, through all of this. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward verses 17 18. He says, Now when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Um, so there's an important principle here um, that we see that the hypocrisy is focused on itself, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's an ugly word. Um, so it's a strong word, too, isn't it? Uh, hypocrisy. But the, the hypocrite labors for his own glory. Uh, and we can't simultaneously labor for God's glory and labor for our own. Uh, it has to be one or the other, doesn't it? Uh, it just doesn't work like that. And we're seeing that this principle is global to prayer, giving, fasting, and 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 I would like to see that the, that we even widen this uh, to every area of life. Actually, uh, anything that we would do to try to gain worldly attention, uh, whether it be uh, posting a YouTube video, you know, uh, preaching, you know, we're we're live on YouTube right now. Uh, if I am functioning right now. Uh, For myself, I would be committing this. Uh, If I'm laboring for uh, Rick Anderson, oh, then that's abominable, you know. Uh, What is this supposed to be about? It's to be about focused on Christ. So uh, preaching, YouTube videos, playing music or sports, I mean, all of these things are things that are very commonly done for the glory of the person who is participating in these things. And such is our hearts. Uh, We need to remember what we learned in John's gospel. Jesus said in John 5.41, I do not receive glory from people. John 5.41, you don't need to turn there, just listen. I do not receive glory from people. That's what he said. I do not. Um, It's liberating, actually. It's a liberating thing. Um, Because so many people are paralyzed today because they're so worried about what everyone else thinks of them. Just paralyzed. What's such and such going to think? What's 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 he going to think? What are they going to think? What do you think? Jesus is like. What does the Father think? If we concern ourselves with that, we don't need to be worried about anything else. At the end of the day, and I think you can see that that really just strips the yoke off the neck of the person that's just so caught up in you know just worry about what the Father thinks is how we you know that's how we find um, uh, freedom from that. The King James translation puts it this way. Jesus says, I receive not honor from men. I think that's helpful. I receive not honor from men. You know, we don't need to take a field and put it in the name of Jesus, you know, because he did something, or we don't need to put the track in the name of somebody, or we don't need, as people are fond of doing. Uh, Jesus says, no, I don't receive glory from people. This was also true of the apostle Paul and his co-workers in the gospel. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, 6. Paul tells the Thessalonians, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. I'll read it again. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And I don't think that we're going to have a successful ministry unless we march to the beat of that drum. That's a common denominator amongst all who uh, have any type of measure of success in ministry. What are they laboring for? The glory of God. We can't simultaneously labor for our glory and his. We're going to be doing one or we're going to be doing the other. And Jesus puts it this way. How can you believe when you seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What is Jesus saying? He's saying when we find ourselves in the posture of seeking glory from others, in that moment, we're failing to even believe. It's, it's complete unbelief. It's a pretty strong statement. Uh, I would commend it to you. It's John 5.44. You can write it down and, and uh, meditate on it often, as I have done. Um, because, I, again, I will tell you, um, when I was uh, new in the ministry and over the course of my ministry, I've wrestled with this. Very much wrestled with this. In fact, I'll tell you, while we were on the subject of prayer, I'll tattle on myself this way. At one point, I don't know how long I'd been preaching. I'd been preaching for quite some time. When um, I discovered that a majority of my praying before preaching wasn't about the congregation I was preaching to, guess who it was about? It was about me. Lord, get me through this. Lord, give me the words to speak. Lord, help me to speak soundly. Help me to speak this way. Help me, 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 me. Goodness, it was all about me. Yeah. We have to start somewhere, don't we? And that's my testimony. Maybe I should keep that to myself. I don't know, but Stephan, it's too late. It's already out. Yeah. And I promised that myself. I wasn't going to pick on you so much this morning. yeah. But that's where we're at, isn't it? I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, I think we all have our story, don't we? Um, that's where I'm at. I don't want, And, and I, I share that with you for this reason, is we're, especially as we're... One of the things I'm finding really hard to do after teaching on prayer is closing in prayer. Last week, I was... Because the, the Sermon on the Mount holds such a high ethic in prayer. And I want you to know it's not one that I, have, that I can reach. I can't reach that yet. Uh, but it's, it's one we have to learn about, isn't it? Uh, we have to learn about it. Uh, so I, I just want you to know that I struggle with you in all of these matters. Now, the principle here is not to seek honor from others through giving, fasting, or prayer, or any other thing. You know, we know the words that Paul says in First Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So last week we saw there were three principles in our approach to prayer. I don't know if anybody remembers the names of them. It's not important that you remember those names. I gave you some of the historic names, you know, like recollection. You remember that? Uh, Recollection. You don't have to remember all that stuff. But what we do need to remember is the principle. Um, In recollection, we need to be aware of what we're doing. Uh, In other words, we don't want to be flipping about prayer uh, we can be that way in recollection we're just simply calling recalling to our hearts what are we doing, but more importantly we're recalling to our hearts who we're doing it with who are we doing it with and that's what's being missed here in verse five by this hypocrisy here they are they're marching into the presence of God while they're faking these prayers so that they can get so that they can get um, praise from other people we see it's we might read it and kind of giggle, but it's a really heinous thing to do, isn't it? Um, it's 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 not a small thing. So we want to re- we want to recollect what we are doing. More importantly, we want to recollect who we're doing it with. And then exclusion, the principle of exclusion. But when you pray, verse 6, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, I think if you're like me, my first thought on that is, uh, okay, we'll get a room, we'll get a small room in the house, we'll rope it off, and that's the prayer room, and that's where we pray. And if you have a room in your home like that, that's great. I don't think many in the first century who heard these words first had such a luxury as a room in their home where they could pray. I don't think that's exactly what... it. it listen, we could... If you have a room like that, it's a good thing. Just don't be waiting for everyone to be around before you run in it so they can see how long you've been in there. Don't do that. You see how easy and subtly this can... But no, what we saw was the principle of exclusion. We must shut things out. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there are certain things that we must shut out. What must we shut out? We must shut out other people. We've got to shut out other people. Uh, and we even have to, in our approach, we have to shut out ourselves. And that's what it means, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. That is what is meant by entering thy closet. And that, and that's wonderful because we could all be thrown in a crowded jail cell and yet still enter our closet, couldn't we? In the midst of a crowded jail cell. Uh, that's the wonderful news. And the last principle that we looked at last week was Realization. We must realize we're entering into the presence of an all-powerful, majestic, and holy God. Uh, we need to realize that. And I, I would say to fail to realize that is falling into unbelief. Why would I say that? Because if we could see him, we wouldn't do that. It's only as we lose sight of him that we do that. It's only as we lose sight. If we could see him, there wouldn't be any chance of us committing that one. Um, so these are our principles. Now, when we come to verse 7, we move to what we might call the exercise of prayer, actually going about uh, prayer. Notice Jesus' words, and when you pray. I think it makes a great title. That's why I keep using it. I don't know how many times i are going to keep using it, but I like it, which means might be using it more. Uh, when you pray. Okay, when you pray. Uh, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Now, what's that mean? Well, it's a stern denunciation against thoughtless or mechanical prayer. Uh, thoughtless or mechanical prayer. And some may be wondering, what does First Kings 18, you know, I always try to have our Old Testament reading have something to do with the sermon. You might be wondering, uh, what's First Kings 18 got to do with uh, with this? Well, actually a lot. Um, First, it might be profitable for you to turn, keep your place in Matthew 6 and turn back to First uh, Kings 18. As we think about this, we have an example, actually, of um, what Jesus is telling us not to do and of what Jesus is telling us to do uh, in this particular uh, passage and again, as a result of King Ahab's apostasy, the Lord has closed the skies. He's closed up the skies. There's no rain. Now imagine our our chief and principal product is agriculture, and we haven't had any rain for three years. Uh, today we would call this uh, you know we we would say the economy is on its face. Uh, uh, the, the Lord has shut off the economy. There's uh, uh, there's no there's no water. Therefore, there's no food. And after three years have gone by, the Lord calls Elijah to set up a contest between the Lord and the false god, Baal. And if you look at verse 21, and Elijah came near to all of the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. Now, if you look down to verse 23, Elijah continues, he says, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, well, that's, that sounds good. That sounds that is well spoken. Now, I want you to pay special attention to how the false prophets go upon go upon the work of praying to their God. Look at verse 26. They take the bull that was given them, they prepare it, and they call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. From morning till noon? O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. You can almost hear them chanting these words. I'm sure other things were said, but from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. If you look down to verse 28, you'll see they cried aloud. And in verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That is the offering of the sacrifice. They're raving on and there was no voice. Now here we have a a lot of chatter, mutter, repetition of words, and it's really paganism. It morphs into paganism because what are they doing? Well, they're they're, they're limping around. They're doing some kind of dances uh, around, some kind of ceremony that they're doing, and they're even cutting themselves. There's a lot of messages, actually, in this passage for uh, today's culture. Trust me on that. Uh, they're, They're lancing themselves. They're bleeding. They're doing all these things, trying to get Baal to answer them. Um, lots of chatter, lots of mutter, repetition of words. Now, if you look down to verse 36, notice in contrast how Elijah prays. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. See how important that sentence is. Elijah didn't come up with this on his own. Elijah has done this as per the direction of the Lord. Elijah set this contest up as per direction of God's holy word verse thirty seven answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that, O Lord, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. He's on about one thing, isn't he? Glory of the glory of the Father, isn't he? Glory of God. And here we see the prophets of Baal offer this desperate ranting and raving and repetition all day, and they think they're going to be heard by their many words while Elijah, notice what he does. He is specific, he is succinct, and he is praying according to God's word. And those are some really important um, points that we're going to look at later. It's going to be too long to get into all of them this morning. Uh, But there he is specific, he is succinct, and it's according to God's word. Now, let's make some application of this. The incident in 1 Kings perhaps is an extreme example But our our sin in this area is related. It's just, it it oftentimes shows itself in much more subtle ways. We might think this way. If I'm going to have success with this particular prayer, well, I'm going to have to pray really hard. Boy, am I going to have to pray really hard if I'm going to get God to do this. I'm going to have to pray really hard. I'm going to have to pray over and over again. I'm going to have to pray for many, many years. I know. Has anybody ever thought like that? Or... uh, maybe have gone about it that way. And here it can get a little bit sticky because Jesus does call us to persevere in prayer, doesn't he? In fact, we're called to wrestle in prayer. And you don't need to turn there, but in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of a persistent widow, which teaches us uh, persistence in prayer. Jesus teaches us to be persistent. In fact, in Luke 18, 1, Jesus Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray And here's the important distinction, not lose heart. To always pray, but not lose heart. That's what wrestling with God looks like. It's a heartfelt prayer that won't give up. It doesn't lose heart. And my classic example, I've been using this example for a long time, and I'm always careful because I don't want to give away the family. At this point, I don't think anybody would probably know them. Uh, but when we, ba- back in the days when we had the music store, I got to be really good friends with a fella uh, he 's probably close to my age and uh, he uh, they tell me he was quite the athlete known all over the valley and um, he uh he used to rent sound systems off of us he did some wedding work and and i got to know him pretty well big strong guy i mean he used to rent these sp2s off of us these big speakers they were 85 pounds a piece and he had a blazer he'd put him in the back you know and i'd be coming out like this with one and he'd have one in his hand and open up the trunk and stick it in like that you know and i'd be coming behind him um he's such a lovely guy um and one day he said to me he says i want you to meet somebody i'm like okay Um, No, I want you to get in a car. I want you to come meet somebody. I'm like, all right, sounds great. He wanted me to meet his dad. He took me to meet his dad, and he said, "My dad just became a believer, and you got to see it. You just got to see it." So I go down to meet his father, and oh, I would concur. Boy, he was he was really excited about Jesus, and uh, he was probably close to he's probably close to eighty years old at that time, and. uh, his mom wasn't there, just his dad, and, and um, as we talked about Jesus for a little bit, the first thing I thought of was, "I bet your wife has been praying for a long time for you, hasn't she?" And he put his head down. And he goes, "Oh man, oh man, fifty-seven years, fifty-seven years, she prayed for his salvation. Fifty-seven years. That's persistent in prayer." Now, I never got to talk to her, but I don't think that she cut herself and gashed herself and did dances around an altar. And No, that's not, what, that's not what's in view here. She wrestled with the Lord, but she wrestled as one who would not lose heart. And that's what we're called to do. Actually, that's exciting. Why would God do that? Well, we can get into that another time. I don't want to open that can up this morning, but... It's actually exciting, but we we have to recognize right now that we're in a we have a drive-through mindset. We want to go through this drive-through. We want to quickly give our prayer requests, go around to the window, and get it answered. That's just where we're at. We got to fight against that. We really got to fight hard against that uh, because God is not running a drive-through. He's really not running a drive-through. So um, we we need to. Um, Uh, We need to take up the subject of the heart here. Uh, We commit the sin that Jesus is describing here in in Matthew 6-7 when we fall into mechanical prayer, when we fall into these uh, motions, when we start uttering words where our hearts aren't engaged. I can't imagine. I, I mean, over the course of 57 years, this woman may have done that. I probably had done that. Probably many times where she's just... This is what I do before I go to bed. I think that's the most likely time for it to happen. You're about to go to bed. You're tired. You want to say your prayers. You just do this mechanical thing or maybe at mealtime. The next thing you know, you've kind of just said the thing you always say in your heart and or your mind was engaged. Um, this is this is committing this point. And Protestants, I mean, was we try to make application on this subject, Protestants are often real quick to point to our Catholic friends and denounce the rosary, but um uh, you know uh, others might say we shouldn't have written prayers but I, I want to say that we can fall into the same sin just by em- just by reciting empty cliches. as someone who prays in public often, you can fall into the same thing simply by uttering those same cliches that you utter all the time um, So this is what we uh, this this really takes us back to our approach we need to realize who we're talking to and that we are speaking in his actual in his august presence. And I want to make one more application going back to 1 Kings 18. And is this, our prayer life is going to be directly linked to our conception of who God is. Your prayer life is actually your theology being worked out. Why do we make such a big deal of theology here? Well, cuz we make a big deal of prayer. Why were the prophets of Baal doing what they were doing? Well, there's a number of reasons. They believed that Baal traveled. Scholars tell us they believed that he would travel, so you better holler really loud. He might be far away and he can't hear you. They believed that he went and fought wars. The Reformation Study Bible has a note uh, that that he went into, they believed he went into the underworld. So if you believe that about your God, it's going to affect how you pray, isn't it? Um, Now, we could believe that God doesn't hear us. We could believe that he doesn't care or that he's not easily moved. And um, Think about if you did believe that, think about how that would affect your prayer life. If I didn't think God could hear me, it would be kind of a ridiculous thing to pray then, wouldn't it? Or if I thought he didn't care, or if I thought that, you know, um, he's not easily moved to action. But as believers, we must realize that the the Lord is a God who hears. Well, someone will say, well, how how do we, you know, that sounds good. Rick, can you strengthen me in that? Well, Jesus is teaching us how to pray, isn't he? He wants this conversation. He says, when you pray, when you pray, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. No. When you pray, do this. And our Father reveals himself as a father. He's ever more willing to hear us and answer us than we are to come to him. And when we believe that our prayers will reflect it and our prayer life uh, will um, be proportional to our doctrine. And I said we weren't going to get into verse 8. Um that last phrase but you know what I think we can handle it you guys you guys up for this a couple more minutes you want to know that one don't you if you look at verse 8 and sometimes you'll get this objection uh, do not be like them which we read earlier uh, for your father knows what you need before you ask him there's a common objection to re- to prayer that says listen if if um, God already knows what we need then why do we need to pray And if we're asking that question, we're forgetting something very paramount here. We're forgetting that God reveals himself to us as a father. Now think about that for a minute. Um, Did that work in the house we grew up? Assuming you grew up in a healthy home. You know, in a healthy home, fathers care about what's going on with their children. And they might fully know well what's going on. And oftentimes, depending on the age of the child, they know fully what's going on. But they want to hear it. They want to hear it. It's it's precious to hear. It's precious for a child to run to his or her father. And it's precious for a child to run to his or her mother. It's hurtful when they run to someone else, isn't it? So when we're asking this objection, we're losing focus. Maybe we've never understood that God reveals Himself to us as a Father. He could have just said, "I'm Elohim, I'm Yahweh, I'm you know, I'm El Shaddai," or go down the list. He could have just said all of that, but no, He says, "No, I'm a Father, I'm a Father, and as a Father, yes, does He know what we need before we ask Him? He knows everything about us." He knows everything about us. He doesn't need biopsies to know about the state of our health. He doesn't have to run tests on us. He knows how this whole thing, he has, the, he has the end in front of him as equally as he has the beginning in front of him and everything in between is all before him at once. He knows what we need. But this is a delightful thing, isn't it? That he desires that we come to him and ask him and spill our hearts to him, and share with him. Why? This is the deepest communion that we have, isn't it? Because now you're sharing things with him that you may not even have shared with your best friend. And in that sense, he becomes your best friend. Amen? So in conclusion, I think I'll just sum it up this way. How do we conclude? Do not be like them. I think it's a good way to conclude. What do you think? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your goodness. You're so very good to call sinners to yourself, to send a Savior, yourself in the flesh, to die on a cross to save us from our sins, to be raised on the third day to give us new life, and then to give us this direction on how we're to live out this new life and to give us such great direction. You've given us us incredible direction in how we are to pray. In other words, you've given us incredible direction in how we are to commune with you, how we are to have communion with you, O Father. O Lord, we pray that you'll help us to drink up all of this, Father. Help us to study this and to memorize this and to know this and put this into practice in our lives, Father, that our communion with you would be enriched, that our life in you, O Father, would be uh, Uh, would be greatly, greatly improved, O Father. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.